You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Patrick Little from History of Parliament Trust, entitled Conning the Cromwellians, The Secret Devotional Life of the Second Earl of Cork in 1650s Ireland. At the end of January 1656, Richard Boyle, Second Earl of Cork, recorded in his diary a conversation with Dr Edward Worth. Dr Worth told me he was asked by either Lord Harry, that's Henry Cromwell, or Dr Harrison, whether I had the common prayer in the house, to which he answered I had not, and that he was with me at prayers and therefore could testify to it. The Earl was apparently let off the hook thanks to the assurances of Dr Worth, but it must have made him shiver to think that such questions were being asked at the very top of government in Dublin. For Cromwellian Ireland was a place fought with danger for a former royalist like Richard Boyle. Although he'd been able to recover his estates through the intercession of his brother, Lord Brockhill, and by the end of the decade was on good terms with the Lord Deputy, Henry Cromwell, Cork always had to look over his shoulder. There was no shortage of both established settlers and Cromwellian interlopers eager to take his lands from him while the radical elements in the Dublin administration and the army of occupation were ever vigilant for signs that the Earl was involved in royalist plots and religious deviancy, notably a continued attachment to the Church of Ireland, which had ceased to exist as an organised institutional body immediately after the Cromwellian invasion of 1649. Dr Worth's defence of the Earl before the Lord Deputy, or possibly his chaplain, Thomas Harrison, thus raises interesting questions. The Earl was clearly suspected of private adherence to the old church, but was there any truth behind that suspicion? Worth said not, but then Worth was himself a religious chameleon, the former Dean of Cork and future Bishop of Killaloo. During the 1650s, he led the Cork Association of Moderate Presbyterians. Was he telling white lies to protect the Earl, or had the Earl really abandoned the Book of Common Prayer? The Boyle family are well known for their puritanical leanings. The first earl was patron to such malcontents as Stephen Jerome and was certainly no friend of Archbishop Lord, Bishop Bramwell and their reforms. The second earl's siblings, notably Lord Brockhill, Lady Ranler and the Countess of Warwick, took their puritanism one stage further during the 1640s and 50s. But the second earl himself was more enigmatic. He shared the upbringing of his brothers and sisters but would emerge after the Restoration as a committed defender of the established church. When this shift occurred, it's not easy to determine, but there are clues. Thankfully, evidence of the Earl's devotional life during the 1650s is revealed in some detail in his diary, as few other papers and almost no correspondence survive from this period. As a caveat, it should be borne in mind that the diary was kept principally for business reasons, recording land, legal and financial transactions, as well as details of the Earl's journeys and family and mostly business affairs. It is emphatically not a religious diary. As we have seen, there were good reasons for reticence also when keeping a diary like that. 
It's noticeable that as the decade proceeded, and especially after Henry Cromwell became de facto governor of Ireland, the personal side of the diary becomes fuller as the old becomes less fearful and of providing incriminating evidence for his enemies. No doubt there was much that was left out of the diary, but what was included allows us at least to begin to reconstruct the Earl's religious life, both in public and behind closed doors. First, the public side. The diary includes numerous references to the Earl attending church, usually the nearest parish church to where he was staying. And thus the churches at Lismore and Yule, close to his two main seats in counties Waterford and Cork, are mentioned frequently. The Earl's tastes were Catholic, with a small c, and Joseph Ayers, the son of a Church of Ireland clergyman, but currently the Presbyterian minister at Cork, and a colleague of Worth in the Cork Association, was a particular favourite, appearing as preacher some 60 times in the diary. Interestingly, the Earl was also a regular at the sermons of Ayers' independent rival, James Wood, minister of Yule. When in Dublin, he tended to worship at Christchurch, the government's church, where he heard sermons by the likes of the independent divine Dr Samuel Winter and Henry Cromwell's chaplain Thomas Harrison, who had started his ministry in New England. These were very public occasions, as an incident in January 1658 shows. When he arrived at Christchurch, the Earl found his customary seat, the pew of his nephew, the Earl of Kildare, was locked. But my Lord Deputy sent for me to sit in his and desired me to do so for the future. This was a kind of public official approval that court craved, not least because it gave his enemies something to think about. But it's clear that the Earl also enjoyed a good sermon, perhaps choosing to focus on the message rather than the messenger, although he drew the line at Baptists and other radicals about whom he could be quite rude. It helped that there was much common ground between the Cromwellian State Church and the Calvinistic Church of Ireland that Cork had grown up with. It was no coincidence that Archbishop Usher was treated with respect by Cromwell and his crew. One point of agreement was providentialism. The Earl shared the broad providential view of the world of his father and indeed with the vast majority of contemporary Protestants. He gave thanks to God for arriving safely after journeys, especially sea travel, which seems to have held special fears for the Earl, as we should see recovering from periods of ill health and milestones such as wedding anniversaries and birthdays. In August 1652, when embarking on the rebuilding of Lismore Castle, the Earl wrote, I beseech God to bless this beginning and to enable me to finish that house which by my father was formerly built. For both father and son, God's providence was the boiled inheritance, which was the family motto, God's providence is, is my inheritance. And fasting was another part of state religion that Cork could engage with. He observed official fast days, as instituted by the government, for such events as naval victories against the Dutch or the fast before parliamentary elections. As with other Protestants, he also held private fasts. The reasons for some are lost to us, but one is not. Every year on the 6th of May, the Earl commemorated his survival of a storm at sea. There are two mentions of this during the 1650s in May 1652, when I fasted all day, and May 1658 being the day which I yearly keep as a fasting day. I mean, that's an indication of how incomplete the diary can be because it's it's an annual thing, but he doesn't always record it. Um, And he continued this tradition into the 1670s, and that's how we know what it was for, because it was only in 
1972, I think it was, that he actually spelt out what this private fast was for. And like attending sermons, fasts and belief in providence, they fitted well with Cromwellian practice. So far, so uncontroversial. When it comes to private devotion, the material is also fairly extensive in the diary, but much more difficult to analyse. On a very basic level, there's no doubt that most of the Earl's religious life seems to have taken place at home. The diary for this period, the 1650s, has 11 references to private devotions, 19 to family or personal prayers, and of the 32 references to sermons, over half were read or heard at home. From the Cromwellian viewpoint, there was nothing wrong with private worship, which had been the mainstay of the Puritan community for decades, but but, um, privacy facilitated unorthodoxy, especially if the banned Book of Common Prayer was involved. But was it? As usual, there are hints rather than clear statements. There are certainly indications that the Earl was sticking to traditions that would have raised an eyebrow at least among the Cromwellians. In the diary, he used the Christian year without hesitation to mark the passage of time, not just the quarter days, so Lady Day or Michaelmas, but also Lammas Day, Martin Mass, and other festivals associated with the older religious calendar which was maintained in the prayer book. The Earl's observance of Christmas Day was decidedly edgy. Instead of ignoring it in true Cromwellian style, the Earl clearly celebrated Christmas, and there were four occasions in the 1650s, 1654, 55, 57, and 58, when the diary indicates that the religious holiday is being observed with prayers in the house or other hints at private devotion. In 1656, he observed a day of prayer on Good Friday, And as we shall see, Easter was also a high day as well as a holiday in his household. Equally intriguing are the Earl's entry diaries for the 2nd of June, 1656, which you can see up there, when his daughter Frances married Colonel Francis Courtney of Newcastle West in County Limerick. The entries are worth reading in full. They're up there. So um, 2nd of June, 1656. My daughter Frances was married to Colonel Courtney in my hall at Yorl, by Mr. Ayers, so he's the Presbyterian minister, sort of. At the wedding, Dr. Dumoulin, who's a chaplain, an Episcopalian, did preach. There was here Sir Piercy Smith, that's a cousin, and his lady, Dean Boyle, that's the Dean of... Cork? Anyway, that row. Uh, I have to check that. Henry Tint and his wife, another relative, Beverly Usher and his wife... More relatives, my cousin Supple and Freak, and many other company, who were all supped with me for the marriage was in the afternoon. Nicholas Purden, as Justice of the Peace, did pronounce them man and wife. So here you have two different occasions. You've got the marriage in the morning, with heirs involved, and then you've got the JP doing the state marriage, which was what happened in the 1650s. Um, and then there's another entry for the same date. In the morning, clearly talking about the same day, we had in our chamber the doctor, that's Dumoulin, Thomas Southwell, my wife, Sir Piercy, and my lady, and Charles, his son, the bridegroom, the bride and bridegroom, where we had prayers, etc. Now, it's, it's awkward, as you can see, but I think here are elements of both a sort of public and a private event. That's not uncommon. I mean, there's... there's, there's 
a way, certainly in England you get that, where people are married sort of privately and then they do the public thing. So the Episcopalian turned Presbyterian Joseph Ayers officiated at the private wedding in the hall of the Earl's house at Yule, it seems, with the Earl's chaplain, Dr. Dumoulin, preaching. The words married by suggest that this was a wedding, but was it according to the prayer book? It was followed by the legal civil ceremony conducted by the JP, and the second entry suggests both ceremonies were preceded, maybe, by a more intimate gathering with de Moulin and close family, the Earl and his countess, the eldest son, various relatives, as well as the bride and the bridegroom. So much then depends on prayers, etc. Was this morning prayer or the real wedding? See, there are more questions than answers, but that's quite an interesting obfuscation of something that might be quite um, revealing. And much less equivocal is the Earl's continued attachment to Holy Communion, usually at the set times established by the Church of Ireland, and I would argue almost certainly following the Book of Common Prayer. For obvious reasons, that was never made explicit in the diary, but it's difficult to see how it could be otherwise. Apart from anything else, private communion did not fit easily with Calvinist understandings of the Lord's Supper or the practice of Presbyterians in Ireland during the 17th century, where as Raymond Gillespie says, communion and, and community were almost synonymous. So this is a communal act. You don't do it on your own or with a very small group. There are 14 entries relating to Holy Communion uh, in between 1652 and 1659. All are explicitly or implicitly within a private context. In my house, in the house, in my dining room, for example. And occasionally his wife or family are specified as attending. Actually, according to the prayer book, you have to have three people. So maybe there was a servant, I don't know. Religious festivals are the main reason for receiving communion. So Easter Day, obvious one, 1652, 55, 56, 59. Whitson in 1656, it's an interesting choice. Christmas in 1654, 55, and 58. And on every occasion, the Earl uses the term the sacrament, which may reflect the seriousness with which he received. But I think that's probably debatable. I'm not quite sure on that. I'd have to, if the people who know about this stuff are in the other room, which is one <laughs> of the four. The depth of his devotion is shown by the entries for April 1657. Let's see those just about. You see that some of the challenges of the diary. He's, the hand isn't too difficult to understand, but he does scroll. So the letter formation can be very bad. Um, so, here we have 4th of April, 1656. Being Good Friday, I spent much of the day in my devotions and in preparation for the sacrament. Then two days later, 6th of April, being Easter Day, I received the sacrament and had prayers in the afternoon in my house. This careful preparation for the sacrament echoes the practice advocated by Jeremy Taylor, amongst others. Although whether it indicates Lordian tendencies rather than standard Church of Ireland practice is a moot point. Indeed, the Presbyterians would prepare for communion very, very carefully too. So this, again, it's a slippery thing. It's difficult to see quite what he's doing. Even though there was a general trend for communion to become more important within the Church of Ireland later in the 17th century, there's very little information about private devotion among the laity and still less about communion in private houses. The identity of the officiants mentioned in the Earl's Diary is also important. Not every officiant is named, 
But those two are form a small group. There's a Mr. Ash, twice, since 1652, 1657. James Bruce, once, in 1652. Pierre de Moulin, three times, 1654 to 5. Edward Singh, twice, 1657 and 1659. And William Smith, four times, 1658 to 9. Ash, I don't know his first name, an Episcopalian, had fallen foul of the Cromwellian authorities earlier in the decade and was protected by the Boyles thereafter. Bruce, of, uh, formerly of Cloyne Diocese, was another Episcopalian, though he became a bit controversial later in the decade, which may be the reason he was only invited once in 1652. He later became Minister of Castle Lyons. Um, Dr. de Moulin, from Huguenot stock, was the Earl's personal chaplain. Edward Singh, formerly Dean of Elphin, later Bishop of Cork, was part of a famous Church of Ireland dynasty. William Smith, possibly from Virginia, because his name is Mr. Smith, there's, there's some confusion there, but um, had been the Earl's chaplain since February 1657. De Moulin went abroad as the um, tutor to the, the Earl's sons in uh, 1655, that sort of time. So Smith succeeds him. And went on to become rector of Rathcormack in Northern County Cork. Again, that's a seat, that's a, seat, that, that's a, a living that, that is um, Boyle patronage. So these were all orthodox and just as important, trustworthy and discreet clergymen. Keeping up appearances was also a feature. On five occasions when the Earl received communion privately, he also attended church to hear heirs, would and other officially recognised ministers preach publicly. This may reflect the Earl's omnivorous approach to religion rather than an attempt at deliberate, deliberate deception although once again there are indications that he was able to dovetail his private devotions with what was expected him in public. And hypocrisy would be the wrong word, I think. The diary evidence suggests that the Earl of Cork was hiding in plain sight, using the freedom he enjoyed in order to order his household as he saw fit, and thus ensuring the Holy Communion was celebrated at major festivals, and perhaps, perhaps, that his daughter was married by a proper minister as well as by a JP. In doing so, and by retaining Church of Ireland ministers as chaplains or presenting them to livings in his gift, both of which, there's quite a lot of, of that in the diary, but that's outside the scope of this paper. The Earl was playing his part in ensuring the survival of the church by allowing it to function underground, even when the church had, as an institution had been destroyed. There were others doing the same, as is suggested by the correspondence between George Rawdon and various members of the Conway family in the later 1650s in um, northeast, in, but eastern, eastern Ulster, the same group that brought Jeremy Taylor to Ireland in 1659, and by other evidence currently under the rose about the activities of Dr Henry Jones, quondam Bishop of Cloha, and a very naughty boy indeed. <laughs> I mean, the Cromwellians thought that he was one of them, and... He, there's, there's a lovely thing because he signs a pay warrant as Scoutmaster General for Cromwell as Henry Cloher. And then his cousin, John Jones, writes to him and says, you must not continue with these titular dignities. <laughs> anyway, more broadly, Cork's diary also attests to the importance within the 17th century Church of Ireland, including the laity of Holy Communion. There can be few better tests of devotion than using banned rites in times of persecution. And the Earl testifies the importance to him as a private individual of the sacrament 
and of the Book of Common Prayer by which it was celebrated. Or as I've argued, within an Anglican context, there could be no other way of celebration other than using the Book of Common Prayer. The Earl could happily join with the state-sponsored ministers when it came to sermons and public worship, and much of his private devotional world was entirely acceptable to Cromwellian snoopers. But Holy Communion was an important part of his faith, and he continued to observe it clandestinely, despite the risks. So, to return to Dr. Worth. Worth may well have been present at prayers in Cork's houses, but he is not recorded as having intended, still less having celebrated Holy Communion there. It is perhaps telling that Worth receives only two mentions in the diary, which, for such a senior local figure, is, I think, surprising. A slight distance between the two men might put the incident in January 1656, when Worth defended the private religious practices of the Earl, into a new context. Maybe the good doctor was indeed telling the truth, but speaking from, from only partial knowledge of events. It was perfectly plausible for family prayers to be extempore, but Holy Communion could not be, and there can be no doubt that official suspicions were justified. The Earl of Cork certainly did have common prayer in his house, but the Earl also knew that deviousness as well as devotion was crucial when it came to conning the Cromwellians. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.